My name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. In this episode, we're going to focus on two of the fastest growing segments in financial markets, sustainable finance and crypto assets. Specifically, we'll look at how central banks are involved in the development and oversight of these two sectors. As a transition to a green economy gathers pace, central banks have a big role to play, from monitoring and measuring climate risk to developing a framework for climate-related disclosures and capital requirements. This is not something that can be done in isolation. Global cooperation and coordination is critical in order to achieve consistency across borders. Meanwhile, the rapid growth of cryptocurrencies could fundamentally change how we think about payment systems and money in general. For central banks, that potentially brings a number of challenges, but it also brings opportunities, prompting several to explore the possibility of central bank digital currencies. Here with me is Scott O'Malia, ISDA CEO. Now, Scott, these are both very important topics in the central banking world. So who have we got in the hot seat to discuss them? We're going to be speaking with Sylvie Goulard, second deputy governor of the Banque de France. Sylvia spent most of her career in French and European politics. Uh, prior to joining the central bank in 2018, she served as the Minister of Armed Forces. Before that, she was a member of the European Parliament. Sylvia is very focused on both sustainable finance and digital assets, so I'm looking forward to getting her take on these topics. But of course, we can't ignore the war in Ukraine, so I'll like to ask her for a view on the Russian sanctions right out of the box. All right. Well, so without further ado, let's bring Sylvia on. Sylvie, thanks so much for joining us on The Swap. It's great to have you with us. Now, let's start with the big issue of the day, and that's unfortunately the war in Ukraine. Since Russia has invaded Ukraine on February 24th, countries around the world have imposed a slew of economic sanctions on Russian entities. What impact has this had on the financial stability in Europe, and how is this being managed? Well, first of all, Scott, thank you so much for your invitation. I'm glad to be in The Swap. Your question is a very serious one, and to be honest, we all have to be very cautious. So, so far, so good. The war is a Russia-Ukraine war, and even if we imposed sanctions, it seems that financial stability worldwide is under control. First and foremost, because Russia was not a big player in economic and financial terms, but if I may, of course, we don't know what could happen in a second round with the consequences of energy, embargo or increases of prices. We don't know what could happen on other commodities. And of course, if there is a severe deterioration of uh, the situation on the ground. So let's be prudent. So far, so good. Thank you. Now, I'd like to focus on some of the other major challenges, a little less weighty than the war in Ukraine. Climate change, though, is an important topic. Can you start by defining the issue in the terms of financial stability and what risks will climate change pose to our futures? It's very nice that you ask the two questions in this order because we are all focusing, and it is perfectly normal, on a war. People are dying under the bombs and, and the shellings. But there is an invisible war. Climate change is serious. It is a phenomenon which is now established by scientists, independent scientists, and that could reach irreversible tipping points in some time. So it's not an issue for the future, if I may say so. 
we already know that climate change is creating risk right now. To define it, the best definition I know is the one of Mark Carney in his famous speech in 2015, The Tragedy of the Horizon. You have the physical risks if you face climate events like floods or fires, for example. You have the maybe the most complicated, which is transition risks. The transition risks are the risk linked with the transformation you have to go through. And of course, many countries worldwide have already decided to go to net zero in 2050 or more or less. And this means that we are already in this transformation and we should not underestimate what it means. We are living in a carbonized society and economy and we need to decarbonize. And there is a third risk, which is the liability risk. We have observed above all in Europe that some people go to courts because of the lack of action. So the main risk or the main opportunity as well is to make sure that we have an orderly transition to net zero. Fantastic. Now, the Banque de France was one of the eight founding members of the Network for Greening the Financial System back in 2017. It now comprises 108 members and 17 observers. What role do central banks play in this space and what steps can they take to drive the transition to this green economy? Thank you for mentioning this network, which is very dear to our heart and which is a great success, actually, and we are very proud of it. And we know that it is only possible because of the commitment of people worldwide wanting to do something. Of course, and I stress that governments are in the driving seats. Above all, in democracies, we believe that people in charge should be accountable, but we can play our part. We look at it through the financial stability angle, because we consider that these major change to the way we produce, we move ourselves, we eat, etc., is going to have a huge impact on the economy. So it's a financial stability issue, one of the missions of the central bank. We are also in charge of supervision of financial institutions and through the controls we have or we exert on financial institutions, we have an indirect influence on the corporates. We also have monetary policy and the ECB for the euro system decided in July last year to go green. And we also have our own monetary portfolio, for example, for the Banque de France, 23 billions, where we try to invest in the best possible way. And if I may, this is very important because we walk the talk and we also realize that it is not easy. So when you're skin in the game, you're not just preaching, you know what it means for investors to have returns and to be serious on climate. Now, you've talked about managing financial stability in the age of climate change and the need for central banks to coordinate their actions with measures implemented by other players, such as financial ministries, government agencies. To what extent is that happening? I know France has the presidency of the European Council. What other examples can you give here? Well, we try to have a dialogue with others, for example, central banks in charge of supervision for banks and insurance company at the national level. At the European level, it is only banks. So, for example, we have an intense dialogue with the people being in charge of supervising the markets. It's very important that we combine these approaches. We also entertain a dialogue with the lawmakers. There is an important piece of legislation on non-financial disclosures, the EU Directive CSRD, which is uh, it's an ongoing process. Of course, we discuss with the rapporteur at the European Parliament, with the European Commission, 
What is also very important, because in your question you mentioned only the public actors, it is also to keep in touch with the private sector, which is playing a great role in this awareness. So we have dialogues in several forms. Personally, I'm involved in the One Planet Lab created by President Macron, which is a global network, very informal, but we have the chance to discuss with CEOs and NGOs, etc., etc. And of course, the TNFD, for example, the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosure, is also an ongoing process. One of the co-chair is David Craig, and we work very well together. So in respect of our independence and the independence of the lawmakers and others, we really believe that it is a matter of concern for all actors. It's, I would imagine, a challenge to bring so many coordinating bodies together, kind of speak with one voice, get the same similar results. We have our own challenges as a trade association trying to bring everyone together to address this important issue. I'll have to say that one of the areas of real interest for my team is the work that we're doing on scenario analysis, bringing together climate modeling and risk modeling. And that's super important. It's something that central banks, prudential regulators are dealing with. We want to contribute to that discussion to make sure we spot the risk in an appropriate fashion. Now, efforts are well developed in developing a transparent, resilient market for the voluntary trading of carbon credits. This is, you mentioned Mark Carney. This is something that he is quite passionate about. And we here at ISDA are also passionate about. What role do you think will be played by both regulated and voluntary carbon markets in the drive to net zero? First of all, Scott, if I may one step back, of course, it's complicated to coordinate with several people, but we are very humble. We don't pretend we know what is to do. So the discussion with other stakeholders, experts is very important for us. So I come back to carbon pricing. Well, in a market economy, there should be a price for negative externalities. And we all know this, and we all pretend that the market is rational and functioning well, but we don't price these negative externalities. That is the reason why the central bank, the Banque de France, has not a position on that as such. But personally, the more I dig on climate, the more I'm convinced that we should go in this direction. And there are many possible solutions. The German presidency of the G7 is trying to create a carbon club going beyond the G7, inclusive. The IMF made very interesting proposals last year on floors that could be used. You have the Mark Carney initiative, the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets. So there are several initiatives. One of the most powerful could be if it is implemented to create also a market in the European Union to avoid carbon leakage outside. Uh, the decision was taken very recently by the finance ministers, but it is only the first step. So once again, this is the right direction. We know how difficult it is politically, but I think the, the more you believe in the market, the more you must be in favor of reflecting the real cost of externalities. Completely agree. Now, there have been discussions of using green supporting factors to give banks capital relief if they are financing projects that support the green transition. Do you think that it's the right approach and how might ESG be incorporated into the prudential framework? 
Well, we are not responsible for the prudential framework. As supervisors, we take it from the lawmakers. And once again, it is a very important issue in a democracy, how much capital you require from banks, because it has an impact on the financing of the economy, above all in Europe, where bank financing is more developed than markets. But if there are risks at a certain point, and we stress, for example, in the very first report of the NGFS in 2019, that climate-related risk is financial risk, at a certain point, you need to find a way to introduce the topic in the prudential framework. Some people are in favor of a green supporting factor. Some people are saying, no, let's try at least to more penalize for the less green investments or credits. There is also the question of the pillar you use. I don't want to be too technical, but let's say there is a certain march of maneuver under the pillar two, and we are trying to work in this direction. But once again, prudential tools are powerful and climate creates financial risks. Yeah, I think we're going to be having an extensive debate around the market incentives and the prudential incentives and the prudential risk management. But the EU is well advanced in developing the ESG reporting and disclosure requirements, a very important first step to all of this, while other jurisdictions are at a much earlier stage. How important is it that these rules are globally aligned? And do you think that's possible? Yes, it's possible if we work hard together. I think for companies, it would be very important to have at least comparable and compatible rules in order to make sure that something happens and to avoid red tape and uh, discrepancies and regulatory arbitrage. So this is important. The IFRS Foundation with the ISSP is working into this direction. Nevertheless, it is also true that behind standardization, ESG standardization, you have some choices about the society you want to live in. And sometimes you have legal obstacles. For example, in France, it is forbidden in our constitutional system to have statistics with the ethnic origins of people. So you are a CEO, you cannot tick the box on the percentage of your staff belonging to this or that ethnical group. This is a small example. You also have the question on how you measure which metrics you agree upon, and of course, with lots of consequences for the economy. The approach chosen at the COP26, what Erki Likanen said in November last year, which is to try to have a baseline and building blocks. And above all, there is one thing which is important in my mind, is that in Europe, we look at it as a two-way approach. The impact climate change and other phenomena nature-related can have on the company, creating risk for the investor. This is the traditional materiality, but also the other way around, the impact economic activity of a company can have on nature and climate. And we are very keen in Europe to have this so-called double materiality, to look at dependencies and to look at impacts. And I prefer a building block logic where we don't dilute the double materiality because I'm perfectly aware that above all in the US, it's quite complicated to make sure that you go beyond single materiality. And it's better for me not to dilute, not to try to find a compromise, but to have a two-step approach. And maybe in the future, we will manage to convince other people worldwide to go along our vision. 
Fantastic. I'd like to switch focus to another area of enormous importance and really market interest in the global financial system, and that's digital assets. The Banque de France has been very active in experimenting with the and testing the use of central bank digital currencies over the past couple of years. What is your view on the potential benefit of the digital euro? Well, first of all, there was already a long trend before the pandemic, and what we observed is an acceleration. People are using more and more digital, they buy online, they want to pay contactless or by phone, etc. This is something we consider an evolution of the society and we have to answer. And technology and digitalization can offer new opportunities, be user-friendly, allow cross-border payments, reduce the costs, etc. So there is a fantastic asset in going digital. Of course, we have responsibilities as central banks, and central bank money is usually part of the stability of the financial system. It is also a tool for the implementation of monetary policy, and we also want to keep the rules we adopted in yesterday's world for anti-money laundering in the new world, adapting our own answer. This is a framework. We are positive, but we don't want to put into question stability or encourage crime. So we have launched, uh, the Eurosystem launched in uh, July 2021, an investigation phase on a retail digital euro in which the Banque de France is, of course, actively engaged. We are measuring the advantages and the costs. We are assessing the economic and financial implications. We discuss a lot with market participants, with uh, panels of citizens. We collaborate also with legislators because there is uh, the idea that we should uh, have a political decision to go and, you know, democracy is normal. And we will take the decision in 2023. Of course, it is a long way to go. All central banks worldwide are also studying their own project. And the most important thing at the end is not to fragment the system. It's interesting. So last year, the Banque de France, the Bank of International Settlements, and the Swiss National Bank completed Project Jura, which explored, among other things, the settlement of FX transactions in Euro, Swiss franc, and a wholesale CBDC, central bank digital currency. What lessons were learned from Project Jura and how might they be applied in the development of the digital euro? Well, thank you for mentioning. It's a nice experimentation with the Swiss National Bank and the BIS. And Jura is the name of the mountain between France and Switzerland. Well, in this case, it is not retail. It's wholesale, uh, CBDC, for large value transactions. So the idea was really to experiment, to see if it works, if we can plug our system. And we use DLT to provide efficiency gains and streamline the settlement of cross-border payments. So there is a technological innovation, DLT. There is a cross-border element between a country of the euro area and Switzerland, which has its own currency. And with the idea to see how we can improve cross-border and cross-currency transactions. It went well. Now we have to draw the lessons, but of course, it was the Banque de France. We have also to discuss with the other members of the euro system. Nobody knows exactly what the governing council is going to decide, but I suppose that we may have at the end some elements of wholesale, some elements of retail, because the two segments are quite different. We'll be interested to see how this plays out, and maybe we'll have to check in with you later. Now, across the global financial system, the use of crypto assets is growing rapidly with increased institutional demand and participation. 
How do you view the rise of crypto from the financial stability perspective? Well, once again, my starting point is that for central banks, we don't want to be seen as being against innovation. New products appear. We are in free markets. It's fine. And until now, there was a very small portion of the financial system. The evaluation is that the crypto asset market accounted about 3% of the global equity capitalization. So it was quite small. But of course, once again, I repeat a little bit myself, we always need to make sure we are the guardians of stability. So we have to make sure that this system is not creating instability, is not used by organized crime, and that we don't interfere with the international financial order. Of course, one of the tricky questions, and I'm not going to deny, is that for such a phenomenon, you need international cooperation. That's the reason why it is discussed at the Financial Stability Board of the G20 within the G20 finance track at the BIS, the CPMI, etc., etc. A last word, maybe two months ago, I would have said, well, we are making progresses. We will manage to reach a global agreement on that. Everybody has in mind the first question you asked me, Scott, which is that, unfortunately, because of the Russia-Ukraine war, we cut so many communication systems between Russia and the rest of the world. We also impose sanctions. So some people may be tempted to use crypto to circumvent the sanctions. I don't want to say more on that, but it is something we keep in mind. And we hope that in the future, in a more peaceful environment, we will be able again to create the global framework, which is the only way to tell the citizens and the private sector that the system is very safe. So we do our best in Europe. We are in the process of adopting the Mika regulation, which is a new set of rules for crypto. So we take it very seriously, but the new perspective changes a little bit the way we looked at it. Now, back in 2018, ISDA published the French law version of the ISDA Master Agreement. How important is this in the development of European markets and trading of derivatives? And what are the advantages of opting for a French law as the governing law for a derivative contract? Well, as we say in French, I am not going to say cocorico, but we are very happy that this happened. It was an excellent initiative taken by ISDA in the context of Brexit. Once again, it's not at all against the UK. The UK took the sovereign decision to leave the European Union. So we are now in a world where English law is no more the law of one of the member states of the European Union. So your French version is above all a European continental version of your rules. It gives, of course, more comfort to the ones making derivatives transactions. It gives also the possibility to to settle uh, disputes within the legal framework of the European Union with a competent judge being, in this case, in Paris. And you know that the international commercial chambers were created as well at the Paris Commercial Court and at the Paris Court of Appeal, which was also a major step in the same direction. As a neutral, how can I say, the honest broker, I must confess that we can support also other master agreements. We like competition. 
governed by European law. But we are very happy that this initiative took place and we hope after all the while to make maybe an assessment together and to listen from you how you consider things are evolving or not. Well, we think uptake is going fairly well. We've also expanded a, a bit that, and hopefully we'll be able to amend this with the SFT documentation, which expands ISDA coverage to securities lending and repo contracts. So we would have a, a larger master agreement that we look forward to making it easier for entities in whatever jurisdiction they choose to use documentation produced by ISDA or others. But we think we have a terrific product and uh, will be well utilized and quite effective as we support it with the opinions work that we um, were known for. So we'll obviously continue to support that work going forward. Now, you've led a highly distinguished career in French and European politics, holding a wide range of influential roles before you joined the Banque de France in 2018. What have you learned along the way and what advice would you give a young person starting in this business? You know, this is the question that makes me feel very, very old, but no, no, it's it's kind of you. Well, I would say keep your eyes open because I'm fascinated by the fact that on the one hand, they can consider that they enter their adult's life, and I have children in this age, in a very special period, pandemic and now a war, threats of nuclear war. So... I understand that it can be a little bit depressing. But on the other hand, all these challenges change completely the way we look at our future. We need to tackle the climate challenge. We have the fantastic field of digitalization in front of us. And I would quite say, maybe as a European, that think twice before you say that all this stuff, you know, peace and rules and values, all the things the parents were used to tell you, that they are completely out of fashion. Because actually, I'm quite sure that many people would appreciate to live in a rule-based order where they can express themselves freely. And that's also the reason why, for me, the market should be maybe a little bit more aware that free markets without a sense of responsibility, without values, without respect for competition, is something less attractive and efficient than markets where you put some values in your choices. So in any case, good luck to the young generation. I'm not sure we have prepared the best planet for you. And I apologize a little bit, but I don't want to be too long because young people always consider that old people speak for too long. So thank you very much, Scott, for this discussion. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. And I look forward to maybe again having this conversation with you. But your insights have been fascinating and greatly appreciate your time today. Thank you. Okay. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Okay, Scott, I'd like to pick up on one particular topic that was discussed, and that's sustainable finance. This is obviously something we've covered a couple of times on the swap. And Sylvia had some really interesting insights on the role of central banks in this space. Can you very quickly remind us of what ISDA's doing here? Absolutely. Uh, we talked about the role of transparent and resilient carbon markets, which we think will help enable the shift to a green economy. ISDA is currently working to develop legal standards for the trading of voluntary carbon markets, and we recently published a paper that explores the legal treatment of carbon credits and recommends steps to promote greater legal certainty. 
We're also working to support the development of sustainability-linked derivatives. Now, this market is small but growing rapidly, but the products are typically customized to the needs of the individual counterparties. Very bilateral nature here. As part of the drive towards standardization, we published the best practices guidelines on key performance indicators, which are designed to monitor the compliance with certain ESG targets. Now, in addition, we're engaging with the policymakers around the world as they develop the regulatory framework for ESG. That work will, is most advanced in the EU, and Sylvie talked about the, some of the reporting and disclosure requirements here. But we're also seeing rapid progress in other jurisdictions too. And we have some more papers coming from ISDA as well on some of these topics that we'll release closer to our annual meeting. Thanks for that. Yeah. And I should also add that our various papers and consultation responses are available on the ISDA website. More to come, but there's plenty there already. I'll also just take the opportunity to once again plug the ISDA annual general meeting in Madrid on May 10th to 12th. We'll be covering both sustainable finance and crypto assets, and we have a great lineup of speakers. So book your place now at agm.isda.org. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time. 